one of the things that we really stress in our marketing of our program is that, you know, we'll never email you unless we're sending you an offer, incentive, promotion, event access, or some kind of a discount. And that's made our program very successful. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Box Office Podcast. I am Rebecca Polly, Deputy Editor of Box Office Pro, the only publication in North America exclusively dedicated to our beloved movie theaters. Joined today by Editorial Director Daniel Aria, feeling a little bit under the weather, glad you're getting that out of the way before CinemaCon, as well as, as always, Chief Analyst Sean Robbins, who we are going to pepper with a number of questions regarding upcoming film releases. And in our feature segment, Daniel, you spoke with two executives from Cinepolis USA. That's right. I had the opportunity to speak with Luis Oyoki, the CEO, and Annalise Holyoke, the National Director of Marketing and Loyalty over at Cinepolis USA. A very interesting conversation about how a global brand entered the U.S. market and how they're really forging a new identity in this country, in the United States, expanding from their home base of Mexico to enter a very competitive mature market for exhibition here nationally. That'll come on the second half of this episode. But before we get started, Rebecca, you have a message from this week's sponsors, Spotlight Cinema Networks, where this week's feature interview is part of the monthly Indie Influencers series. Absolutely, Daniel. Uh, Spotlight Cinema Networks is evenly comprised of luxury, dine-in, and art house theaters. Spotlight represents segment leaders, including Angelica Film Center, Lemley Theaters, Landmark Theaters, Cinepolis Luxury Cinemas, Flix Brewhouse, Look Cinemas, and Silver Spot Cinemas. To find out more, please visit SpotlightCinemaNetworks.com. Guys, uh, let's start with a quick news recap. A slow news week in exhibition, Rebecca. But we did get a nice little headline from our friends at CinemaCon, a major Hollywood title having an advanced screening at the event. We're talking about Top Gun Maverick from Paramount screening at CinemaCon. I'm not going to complain about a slow news week. I feel like we've had two years of uh, intense news weeks. So I'm, I'm, good. <laughs> I'm good with the biggest news items that we'll get to see a new Tom Cruise movie. And of course, Top Gun being named the most anticipated film to hit theaters in our annual box office barometer poll, voted exclusively upon by exhibitors on Box Office Pro, that title winning out against every other film coming out this year. So we know this is going to be a screening that that CinemaCon audience is highly, highly anticipating. Let's bring in Sean Robbins to talk about the weekend forecast, because Sean, we have a couple of titles opening this weekend, some holdovers, and I want to get some insights from you real fast to start off on Doctor Strange actually opening its pre-sale cycle last week, and we're seeing some strong numbers. You came out with your first long-range forecast breakdown of this title. Before we get into this weekend, Sean, what are you expecting this way out of the next MCU installment? I think expectations are are pretty high at this point. This is back in that first weekend of May where Marvel movies have traditionally opened to massive numbers during most years for almost two decades. 
And this one is is looking really strong out of the gate with pre-sales. That's to be expected with Marvel movies. It's essentially ahead of every other pandemic title so far that's not named Spider-Man No Way Home, which will for quite a while be an unfair comparison to any movie. So that aside, I, I think we're definitely looking at another major event film from the MCU and Barring any unforeseen developments, and especially if reviews and early reception come out strong, I think these numbers that we have out now of of around 165 million or higher, I, I could easily see those increasing. That's essentially our conservative floor at the moment. That's conservative right now for this title, 165. Wow. That's that's really good news to hear. Well, and before uh, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of, of Madness comes out, next weekend we have the latest entry in another mega franchise, albeit one that, uh, you know, Sean, Sean, I'd be interested to hear your take on the numbers, has kind of fallen off over the last few years. Uh, we had the eight films in the original Harry Potter franchise. This weekend we are seeing the release of the third film in the prequel series, Fantastic Beasts, the Secrets of Dumbledore. Sean, based on the the previous two Fantastic Beasts grosses, I mean, uh, what are your expectations on this? Because I kind of feel like as someone who was way into Harry Potter back in the day, the books more than the movies, but that's a whole separate conversation. It feels like the, the kind of cultural consciousness, the cultural import has fallen off these last few years. And, and do you think this will have an impact on the box office? I do, unfortunately, and like yourself, I've I've grown up a Harry Potter fan, and watching some of those movies were just major kind of moments in my social life, I guess, back in the day in high school and college. But looking at where the franchise is now, especially from a high level, it's very clear that the event nature of the Potter franchise hasn't translated to the Fantastic Beasts series. I think things started off okay with the first film. It earned $234 million domestically. That was about as well as could be expected for a Harry Potter movie that didn't have Harry Potter and was a prequel. The trouble began a few years ago with Crimes of Grindelwald, which ultimately opened lower, uh, $62 million versus the prior film's $74 million, and actually became the first movie in the Wizarding World franchise to not gross $200 million domestically. That was a very telling sign, and I think that really speaks a lot to where the goodwill is at for these movies right now. When they announced that first Fantastic Beast film, and, and Sean, correct me if I'm wrong, because this feels like 20 years ago at this point, the plan was initially for it to be a five-movie series, right? I think so. That I'm wow. pretty sure that's right. And I'm, to my knowledge, they've not officially said that that's not still the case. That's a lot of double negatives in there, but uh, to, uh, from, from what from what I've tried to pay attention to over the years, I think there's still an expectation that this series will go beyond the third movie. I think results of this movie might dictate that, though. That's so interesting to me, guys, because we're all the same age here. We're all in our mid-30s. My wife, also the same age as I am, is a huge fan of that Harry Potter franchise. So we are talking about a generational attachment to books and movies for people really in the age range, many of them that have young kids. But it seems like that appeal has really been lost over the years in a way that I can't really compare other franchises to. What happened here? I mean, in 2011, I remember Warner Brothers being in a really difficult situation with an executive transition. I think that's when Kevin Sujihara came into the top role at the studio. That's the same year when the Harry Potter franchise ended 
and the Christopher Nolan Batman series ended. And there were a lot of question marks on how these franchises were going to recreate themselves, how they're going to relaunch for a new generation. It seems like Batman, after some false starts, was kind of able to pull that off. At least we can see that in the box office results of the Matt Reeves movie. What happened to this franchise? At what point do we start to see the cracks in the system that maybe people don't aren't willing to go yeah. out for every single Harry? Because they had the Wizarding World, the, the theme park thing, and those were extremely popular, right? Yeah, I... It happened very suddenly to me with the Fantastic Beasts movie, because if we look back at all eight Harry Potter movies, they were the model of consistency. Uh, quite frequently, it would just it'd be very easy to say a Harry Potter movie was going to make somewhere around 275 to 300 million dollars for more than half of those movies. And then, of course, the last movie came out and became the top grosser, as you would expect for a big finale like that. But with Fantastic Beasts, there was never really an expectation it would hit those highs but I think the fact that the second film fell so sharply, I believe it was over 32% from the first Beasts movie, that was the fork in the road for where this franchise was going. I like that you both bring up Batman and Harry Potter because, to me, this is one of those franchises that hasn't been able to get its footing as a prequel series in the way that maybe The Hobbit did or The Batman has been able to do with different iterations. Harry Potter is still a relatively new franchise compared to Tolkien's work, which is over half a century old, and Batman similarly has been around for generations. This is still a property that has its audience growing up, and as you mentioned, it's it's actually now primarily an adult audience because the second movie was driven by 69% over the age of 25 on opening weekend, and this is clearly not as much of a family movie as I think it was when Harry Potter was coming out 20 years ago. The big sequel is a Broadway musical now. I mean, how could, that's that's definitely a leaning more towards adults. We've had some controversies around both series creator J.K. Rowling and Johnny Depp that cannot have, have helped, really, I imagine. We were talking about that offline, where that brand has really suffered by the controversies of both series creator and author J.K. Rowling and former Fantastic Beasts star Johnny Depp. So, of course, when we see the impact that the brand has taken from these controversial figures, I think it's natural to see that the IP has really been degraded over the years, despite having a fantastic allegiance from adults, children, parents. Uh, a real pity to see how this panned out. Rebecca, what was that international debut for Fantastic Beasts over the weekend? The Fantastic Beast, The Secrets of Dumbledore debuted overseas in 22 markets to $58 million estimated over the weekend. Those top markets are China with 10 million, Germany with 9.4, Japan with 8.6, and the UK uh, 8.0 million. Certainly not the sort of numbers that anyone would have expected a Harry Potter film to be getting. I don't think by any means the IP is unsalvageable. I mean, they're having success with The Cursed Child. They're having success with The Wizarding World of Harry Potter. You know, like you say, this is a, a, a young franchise, but I, I think the franchise as a whole could come back from uh, from the failure of Fantastic Beasts. But, uh, you know, it, it kind of all depends on whether Warner Brothers decides to pull the trigger and make those final two movies or not. Yeah, and this is 
really going to be the determining factor. It, by by all accounts, it seems like this is more of a fan friendly movie compared to the second one, just based on what we've heard from early reviews and people that have seen it. But is it enough? Is it too little too late at this point for the franchise? And I, I completely agree, though, that there is still a lot of growth that I think will happen over time here. Honestly, if in 10 years they announce they're going to make a live action version of the Cursed Child book with the original cast, I that would be a massive blockbuster. I, I just There's not much question to me on that. And you know, you mentioned the the theme park and just all sorts of of ancillaries and merchandising. All of that universe is still very successful. It's just been these particular movies, and especially the second one, and unfortunately, it's looking like the third one that have failed to catch on in the same way. And that UK opening really is quite telling to me because that's that's the home base of this franchise. Very much so. So domestically, Sean, what range are you looking at here? this opening weekend for the latest entry in the Fantastic Beasts series. So this is a challenging one to look at because we are looking at Good Friday and Easter weekend. So that essentially means Friday will be inflated and it also may introduce some element of extra front loading to Thursday with shows beginning as early as 2 and 3 p.m. So it's almost a full opening day, but it will all be rolled into Friday. What we're kind of going to be looking at here is is whether or not that audience outside of the diehard fans come back. And that's going to be a challenge. That's going to be an uphill battle, especially with Sonic doing well and that being the family movie now. We've been looking at mid-40s to mid-50s has been the range on this movie for a little while. That would still be a drop from Crimes of Grindelwald. But even then, I... I'm tempted to say that it, it's it's probably a little bit more wide open on the low end of that range. So by the time this podcast is out on Thursday, we'll have our final forecast out. I wouldn't be surprised if, if maybe the numbers are a little lower than mid-40s as part of our range because there are just so many moving factors here and pre-sales have been unlike any other trend in this franchise, in part because of that holiday element, but also I think because there is just a lot of uncertainty even among fans about where this franchise is going. Sean, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we will chat with you again next week to do a dissection of that opening weekend for Fantastic Beasts and hopefully get, uh, you know, revised numbers from you on how many millions, bazillions of dollars we can hope uh, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness is going to bring in. Thanks again, Sean. And now we are moving to our feature segment brought to you by our partners at Spotlight Cinema Networks. This week, we are interviewing Luis Orioqui, the CEO of Cinepolis USA, and Annalise Holyoke, the National Director of Marketing and Loyalty at Cinepolis USA. An interesting conversation where we dive into the history of this global brand entering the U.S. market and what their approach is in the luxury and dine-in space. Spotlight Cinema Networks, Rebecca, is actually a cinema advertising company that is split halfway between art houses and the other half of its network coming in with these dine-in and luxury cinemas. Cinepolis being, I think, one of the global leaders in that conversation. So it is a great opportunity to catch up with them on the insights that they've taken in their time here in the marketplace. It's been an extremely difficult two years. Uh, there's been a lot of lessons learned during the pandemic. And I'm sure if I asked you this question at this point last year, the answer would be very different than what it is going to be today. 
But could you guys go over what some of those lessons have been since reopening on how exhibition has recovered so far? Yeah, sure. Uh, Daniel, I think for us, it, it has been a long journey, I agree, and it has been a learning journey. And what we have seen these two years is that uh, it, it mainly that we can be more efficient in running our theaters. No, I think we have learned to run them with the skeleton crew, but but also trying to to keep uh, the service where the client is used to. No, because when they came back from the closures and and we reopened the theaters, only we had to give them a service that is up to where we, we had it before when we closed, because that was what we were expecting. Everybody just want to get out, but have a great time, no? So I think that's one of the main uh, uh, lessons that we have learned, how we can manage your payroll or expenses, the opening hours, the closing hours, in a way that where we can maximize uh, the revenues uh, by servicing uh, our clients and, and at the same time, not overspending, no? I think before we were very used to, for like to opening very early, even in the weekdays, now it's, it's not necessary. No, maybe later on when the summer comes and we have a, a, a very strong summer, that will be the case again. But I think that will be right now. I will say the, the main the main lesson in terms of being efficient, uh, targeting our clients, and 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 being the loyal clients that are the first one that came came back and giving them the great experience of of seeing a movie in, in the big screen. I think another big lesson too is that we really have to make the experience the best that it can be so that it entices people to get off the couch and come to the cinema. And I think that at Snapless, we do a really great job of that by offering those amenities that you just can't get at home. Things like we really, over the pandemic, um, even though resources were scarce, it gave us time to uh, work on our menu and work on the food that we were serving our F&B team was very hard at work, um, making sure that when we reopened and came back, we were doing things a little differently, like making more sauces and making more things in-house, really trying to make that food quality, restaurant quality, because that is what we believe is going to be the future of cinema. And, and part of that future, I think, is what Cinepolis is bringing into the U.S. market when we look at the circuit as a whole from a global level. For me, it's been very interesting uh, with my own personal experience with the circuit, uh, living in Mexico in the mid-90s, how circuits like Cinepolis modernized in the mid-90s to the late 90s, sort of catching up to the model of what a movie theater was in the United States. But by the time we get to the 2010s, and Cinepolis hasn't really entered the U.S. yet, we get to a point that when Cinepolis enters the United States market, it's Cinepolis bringing a lot of those innovations that happened in its global circuit back into the United States. I mean, recliner seating, dining, VIP luxury cinemas. That's really been a big part of the circuit's DNA here in the U.S. Maybe you guys could speak a little bit about what's unique to competing in this very specific niche and exhibition in the U.S. today. Yes, I think for us, that was, uh, I think you, you, you hit the nail in the head. That was the, the strategy, you know. We, when we decided to come to the U.S., uh, we specifically decided not to compete with the big three. We didn't want to, they were already in most of the major cities. They have the big plexus, 20, 24s, and so we were very specific and they want to do something different. And, and we saw the opportunity as there were non dining or, or major dining or luxury concepts here in the U.S. to bring that experience that we had 
in other countries. Uh, when we founded, uh, we had the first luxury dining in, in Mexico in 1994 to bring it here to the U.S. as a different offering. I think for us, uh, it, it was not competing directly with them, bringing, like you said, the recliners, a more upscale food, uh, different from the traditional uh, hot dog and nacho that, that you have at, at the theater, but also having those originally of what people like about the theater. No, going the popcorn, I think it's a classic and, and you have to have popcorn when you go to the theater. But you can also have a great burger at a pizza cocktail, a craft beer, uh, some wine, a, a, a dessert that is different than just ice cream. So I think that is where what we decided to compete here, and and that's the niche that that we saw that it was open, and and that's why we have uh, tried to stay true to that strategy. And like Annelie said, I think in 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 general, as we see the future, uh, with Windows shortening, uh, we think that having a very appealing uh, food component and drink and beverage uh, offering will make it more attractive for any client. To get out of the couch and come to the theater, no, uh, and that's how we—that's what we are trying to to achieve, and we will continue to push in 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 that regard. One of the things we really did differently too um, was marketed ourselves as a brand. I mean, most people, if you ask them where they went to a cinema growing up, they know where it was. They don't know the name of it. They might. Outside of loyalty programs, cinemas just really didn't spend money on marketing their own brand. And I think some of the bigger chains have caught up in most recent years. But when we first embarked on the U.S. journey, we were marketing ourselves as a brand. And that was very different from um, other chains. Alamo was really the only other circuit that was branding themselves as something unique. Loyalty programs are such an important part of that conversation. And maybe we could focus a little bit more on that, Annalise, uh, as this is a, a big part of your role. And it's something where loyalty probably wasn't in a title for someone working in exhibition 10 years ago. Can you tell me about that, that relationship, how that's evolved, that aspect of your work in engaging with audiences directly? Absolutely. I mean, it's no secret that movie theaters spend significantly less on marketing than a restaurant chain or other brands. Um, so loyalty, I think, is something that we've always relied on. And it's interesting because I think in, in the marketing space, movie theaters have never been on the forefront of anyone's mind in terms of innovation as it relates to marketing. However, they have actually really been on the forefront of innovation when it comes to loyalty programs. Most movie theater loyalty programs have been around a really long time. They started out primarily as a weekly newsletter. This is what's playing. These are the times and this is what we're doing. The way we, uh, because we started later, we were able to kind of launch our program in a completely different way rather than just emailing everyone a list of what's playing every week. We've taken the approach of, of personalization and segmentation. And so all of our members really are receiving communication on a personalized level. We're sending out promotions that are relevant to them for films that are relevant to them. So one of the things that we really stress in our marketing of our program is that, you know, we'll never email you unless it's we're sending you an offer, incentive, promotion, event access, or some kind of a discount. And that's made our program very successful. It's definitely been a challenge kind of training, retraining 
the studios and some of our other partners that, you know, every week they want to be included in our weekly email. And we have to explain like, hey, like we actually do it a little differently. But from a guest perspective, they see a lot more value there because they're getting information that's relevant to them. And we're capitalizing on bringing rather than, you know, over communicating. Like, I think we all are part of programs where you're like, I just bought something and like you're emailing me an hour later to buy more stuff. We try to make sure that we're only um, contacting you when it's relevant. And we know that you're um, likely to make a purchase because quite frankly, for us, we are a smaller chain and we are um, on the higher end. So about 80% of our customers are actually in other loyalty programs for movie theaters as well. So we have to make it as relevant as possible for them. And part of that, of course, is using that communication with the people that go to your theaters to promote different concepts, different innovations, different initiatives that you're introducing in the market. Luis, over the past couple of years here at Cinepolis, could you speak a little bit about what some of those initiatives and innovations Cinepolis has introduced to its U.S. theaters? Well, that's a, that's a good question. Well, obviously... We, we... We started with, with the dining, uh, uh, reserve seating, uh, when, when we have the first, the first show, the recliners, later the recliners when, when we started back in the day. And then uh, we did, obviously we have an IMAX that is maybe not, not as, 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 as innovative, but for us, it was something different to bring here also to, to the U.S. And like analysis that the rewards program. Our food component, I think what we're trying to do uh, is also in that sense, uh, have a very tasty and, and, and flavor food, no? The other thing that we did just previous to the, to the, to the closing, uh, I think we, I'm not sure we opened the first screen X with a dine-in, no? So we have a screen X with a dine-in, but uh, that theater opened in November of 2019. So just a few months and now it has, uh, lunch and, and is doing really well. To Luis's point, the food and beverage is really what we personally have been focused on. Um, we have behind the scenes also tried uh, and tested some app ordering things and, and ways to do more on the phone. And that's something that we're really focused on for this next year is getting our website even more optimized and efficient. We want that booking process to be as easy as possible. You know, we've always really invested in the lobby spaces because we want it to feel like a third place for people to gather and to feel comfortable. That's something that, you know, not everyone has done. But, you know, back to the food and beverage component, we've really invested in the size of our kitchens. When I first started, uh, our kitchens were probably not much bigger than the size of my kitchen at my house. And now and you're servicing an entire complex. Exactly. That size, right? Yeah. Because, you know, we were a movie theater chain that wanted to sell food. And now we really consider ourselves in the restaurant space. And now we've got huge kitchens. We've got satellite bars. We've got all sorts of um, innovations on the kitchen side to make things more efficient. We're constantly optimizing the menu putting things on, taking things off that are maybe potentially taking too long. Because like you said, we're having to serve hundreds of people every hour versus, you know, a normal restaurant. So that has been a big part of the innovation is things that maybe guests don't see, but they're happening on the back end. Yeah, another thing that, that we have, and, and, and you will probably see here in our new built theaters, is, is the size of the screen, but also specifically 
how far the first row is from the screen. Now, I think it's something that, that we have seen here with other, other chains, but in particular for us, the, the, the whole experience of, of watching the movie in the theater needs to be optimal, no? And, and before that, we need to sacrifice some rows because we don't want you to have a, like a problem with your neck when, when you're so close to the screen. We'll do that, no? So you will see in, in all the buildings that we have uh, uh, built from scratch, where the first row is is very far away from the screen. For us to guarantee the client that if you're in the first row, you'll be able to, to experience the movie as it should be, you know? And, and yeah, we'll probably sacrifice maybe some revenues, but at the, in the long term, what we want is, is, is uh, happy customers. Once you bring in dining to the equation, I think the formula changes a little bit when we talk about how the exhibition industry works. It was always a little bit more difficult in terms of operations before the pandemic. But now since the pandemic, we're talking about the two industries that have faced some of the biggest challenges in retail, cinemas and restaurants. How has the dine-in cinema business changed since the pandemic became a reality here for us? Well, I think it has changed in, in that we have now clients that, that uh, want better service. No, I think before there was a little more patience. Now, because they're going out and they're going out less often, they're they're requesting and and requiring a, a much better service. So I think that's the first. The other thing that that maybe some of us hate, but at least we as operators love, is the QR codes menus. That has been incredible. I think that's one of the changes that I, I know some people don't like them, and for that we have printed menus. But it, it makes our life much easier and, and cheaper in, in several ways. One, obviously we can update the menu much faster, do changes without having to print all those and send them to the theater, replace them, and then you have the mistakes of, of the employee didn't replace the, the, the correct uh, orders. It helps us to have uh, LTOs, to be informing the client about the new items, the promotions, or a new dessert that we're having. If we're having shortages in, in, because that's another problem that we have had, we can also delete those, those items that, that we don't have available. So I think, and, and at the end also it saves, it saves on, 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 on paper. And I think that's another thing that we need to take care of our, of our world. So it's, it's very environmentally friendly. As we continue that trend of finding ways for exhibition to stay ahead of the curve of the changing release windows and exclusivity, we have to look at programming options. And event cinema has been one of the biggest growth areas in this industry over the last decade to find new ways of programming your screens, especially during off-peak periods where you don't rely as much as the studios. I know Cinepolis has been one of those circuits that has focused a lot on event cinema programming. And I want to take uh, your impressions of how event cinema plays into your circuit strategy today. I think Luis and I can both agree that it's something that we mm. um, have been focusing on. Uh, we were really one of the first uh, to do the private watch parties when the pandemic hit. And that, I think, showed that people do want to see content in the theater, even when there is not new content to come out. We love alternative content and we want to have it in the buildings, you know, when possible, because during those uh, need times, it really is bringing people in the concerts and, you know, I would love to see more Broadway shows and things like that because, you know, especially it makes it more affordable if you can't afford to go to a concert or a Broadway show. I think it's a great way for people, uh, you know, throughout the country to experience some 
really great content that they might not normally get to see. And it helps us fill those buildings at need times because there's definitely weeks where we all know nothing's coming out and it would be great to have alternative options. Yeah, I think in, in that sense, I think we have done a great job, like you said, Daniel, in, in, in most of the countries. Here in the U.S., we have not been able to push that envelope as much as we would like to because we're not that big, you know, and, and copyrights and it's very difficult, very expensive. Uh, but, but it's something that, that we have tried since a long time ago. You know, we were the first chain in the world that had a, a 3D live soccer game, no? and we did it uh, for the World Cup. Uh, we did also live opera. Uh, we have done live concerts. No? So we, we had a, a live concert from the Red Hot Chili Peppers in Berlin, and we showed them in, in Mexico. So you start seeing the, the opportunities out there. I think for us that were smaller chains, it, we need some partners that can help us in, in getting the copyrights and spread them around. Because we, we, it's very difficult for us to go to the NFL and try to secure a, a deal for Sunday night football or Monday night football or Thursday night football because we're, we're not that big, no? And, and that is the case with other type of, of, of content that is out there that I'm, I'm sure people are really, really craving to see because if you cannot see, I mean, Hamilton is, is, is a good example. If you cannot afford paying the tickets, uh, the best next thing to see Hamilton, it will be in a theater, no? And, and uh, unfortunately, we didn't have that opportunity. We would like to have it with that with other shows, no? And, and there's a, a lot of content being done uh, across the world that we're sure that with globalization, it will be more appealing to, to our clients, no? And I think the BTS is, is a good example of, of Korean music uh, coming to the U.S. and, and people are, are really craving for it. Yes, I think that will really help across the coal industry to start using more or, or the spectacular buildings that we have with this state of the sound, state of the art, sorry, sound and, and projection or other type of, of, of uh, screenings or, or shows. No. Out of curiosity, do you remember what soccer game was that you guys did in 3D? I'm almost sure it was a Brazil. I think it was the opening on, on, I think it was, it was in Brazil, the World Cup in Brazil or, or the World Cup before that, because the Brazil one was not that far away. Yeah. As long as it wasn't Brazil, Germany in that Brazil World Cup. That no, I would. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm not sure that would have gone very well, at least in your Brazilian theaters. That yeah. would have been difficult. I think the big thing is consistency because yes. like you get a concert here, you get a concert there, you might get a game here or there, or, you know, people, you know, guests are seeing a USC fight, but then you might not see it for a couple of weeks. And we need that consistency of that content mm-hmm. to make it, to make it work so that the guests know that they have access to it on a regular basis. And it's not just sporadic. Yeah, and it takes time to train, to train the the, the the client, because we saw it when we had the first show, the first soccer game. At the end, when you go into a theater, your mindset goes to silence your phone, keep quiet, no? <laughs> so you're in a soccer game. So that's that, that contrary to what we do. You want people to be yelling and, and enjoying it the same with a concert, no? It's kind of like now that, that we're having this concert, our managers are asking, well, what can we do? To, to, to make people feel more like in the concert hall where they can stand up and dance and sing. Will they be quiet? Will they not be quiet? And I think you need to go feel that experience, enjoy it. And then now you start seeing the benefits of, 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 of going to a theater and, and experience different type of, 
of shows. And we spoke about this a little bit earlier in the conversation, uh, but I, I have to take this a little bit selfishly because Cinepolis just remodeled one of the movie theaters that I went to all the time when I was in high school in Miami in Coconut Grove. Uh, I was there countless occasions, saw many, many films there. You guys went in for a complete remodel, and I think that's a good opportunity to speak about how a cinema that you're remodeling basically from the ground up, what changes you're instituting into that space today, and how that informs your new builds coming in the future. Basically, what does a cinema of today and tomorrow look like for those for listeners that haven't gone to a new theater in a while? Well, thank you, Daniel. Yes, we're really proud of, of, of that remodeling. It, it took a long time because we started in August of 2019. And, and can you imagine we have to stop that, 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 that uh, project for a while? But I think what, what, how we approach this project in particular and, and think is, is considering the location. Now we know that that location was very successful. It had done really well. The shopping center was being remodeled too. So I think that really helped in terms of the partnership with the landlord on them uh, rethinking how the shopping center will work in the future. So they turned down part of it. They brought new restaurants uh, that are more local, uh, chef-driven. They, they also built some offices. So now you're talking about a mixed-use project uh, with, with more appeal to, to the local community. So that, that's great. And then we approach the, the whole design of the theater in, in how it should be. No. So if, if you remember what, what we, we went all crazy and, and we demolished one screen in the middle to turn it into a kitchen because the kitchen that the theater had was very small. The bar was kind of like on to the side. It was on, on the opposite extreme of the rest of the auditorium. So bringing the food from one stream to the other will be too complicated. So we, we, we need to talk, we need to think about how will the theater run in the long term and do the proper investment in, in that sense. So, so we don't have a concession stand anymore. It's now it's a beautiful bar. Uh, and then where, where the bar is, we, we created a lounge area for events because that theater in particular did a lot of events. So now we have a private area. Uh, uh, with TVs because uh, here obviously sports uh, is, is really important so we can also use it for for sports showings in, in the bar in the middle of the auditorium of the cold building like I say we destroy the, the, the screen and put a, a new kitchen with a service bar so we can serve uh, the other side of the building and, and, and the, the unfortunate thing about it is that we cannot raise the roof so that was the main problem in terms of, of having bigger screens because that was a limitation in terms of the permits and it will have made it cost prohibitive. But I think that's where you're finding the middle ground on how can we bring up to date a theater that the, the community really loved and now be able to serve them as, as they deserve because theater yeah, was, was a little all uh, on, on the old side. Guys, thank you so much for joining us again in this week's episode of the Box Office Podcast. And I'm looking forward to seeing you guys in person at CinemaCon in a couple of weeks. We'll all be there. We're excited to go. It'll be a good opportunity to catch up with colleagues and friends. And to our audience, that wraps up this week's episode of the Box Office Podcast. Thanks again to Rebecca Polly, Sean Robbins, and our partners at Spotlight Cinema Networks for sponsoring this week's edition. The Box Office Podcast is produced by Box Office Pro, the box office company, and Record Edit Podcast. New episodes come out every Thursday, so 
please be sure to subscribe, rate us, say nice things about us on the internet. We always appreciate it when that happens. And we will talk to you again next week.